Um, this is Paul Fischer, um, talking to Chao uh, Jing Wang, one of our speakers in the in the summer school. And in your talk, you focus very much on on the the role of working memory, sustained activity, and in cognition. And you started with this fairly strong claim, where you said that actually delay activity is the key to to cognition. Right? So. So why do you think this is the key ingredient that we should worry about? Right. I guess the general idea is that imagine that you cannot hold in your mind anything in absence of direct sensory stimulation. Then it seemed to me that uh, most of the repertoire of behaviors is going to be reduced to reflex. All you can do is uh, you know just uh, re reactively respond to uh, stimuli right away. Otherwise, you, you, know, you wait, you forgot what was the stimulus, so you cannot really act accordingly. And, and they become enslaved to the external world. Whereas if you have this ability to hold something in your mind, even when the input is gone, then you are freed from the you know immediate uh, stimulation, and so that you can become a lot more flexible, right? Um, you can, for example, wait and decide what you do about the stimulus and still remembering what was the stimulus. Right. Yeah. And then as an as a implementation of this, you were pointing very much to cortical circuits. So what's so special then about cortical circuits that they can actually can give you this kind of memory function? Right. So in fact, persistent activity itself is probably more uh, widespread than working memory related persistent activity. So I want to distinguish those two things. Uh, for example, uh, even you know when you try to hold a gaze, right? Your your eyes are you know fixating on something. That's you know maintained by persistent activity in the ocular motor system outside of the cortex, right? But uh, there's a very long history of uh, studies pointing to uh, the prefrontal cortex as a very important structure for working memory. So that date back to, uh, I guess, 1920s and 30s, where people showed that if you do lesion of the prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, an animal like a monkey, we're not able to do delayed response tasks, which depends on working memory. So from there on, I think you know there is a lot of studies showing that prefrontal cortex is really important for mm -hmm. for uh, you know working memory, and that's why um, there's a lot of focus on on, on, on cortex. But yeah. then you, you you were saying that it is. Uh, the special characteristic of this dense recurrence in these circuits that could sustain this this memory function is that is that yeah, correct? That's the idea. Yeah. Okay. So then, then then I could argue that actually this kind of dense recurrence I would find throughout the cortex. So why is then not my occipital cortex that's usually more dedicated to vision actually a working memory system showing sustained activity? Why? What's then so special about these frontal areas? To the that they can support working memory. Right. So I guess empirically we don't do not have enough uh, you know data to answer your question explicitly, but uh, generally it probably is a matter of degree, right? So we know even in the primary sensory areas, uh, the majority of uh, synaptic inputs are coming from within the local circuits, but maybe um, there's just 
more in the prefrontal cortex compared to sensory areas. And what's interesting from the computational point of view is that you can show that because of these feedback systems, your dynamics is nonlinear. And in nonlinear systems, I think it's very important uh, that just some graded differences, some quantitative differences, in, for example, in the amount of recurrent connections, can lead to qualitatively different behaviors. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if your recurrent connections is you know below a threshold level, you don't see persistent activity. If it's above a threshold level, you start to see persistent activity. So that may be you know my take about that. Just to add that it could also be there's something else, such as neural modulation, which may be somewhat different. So for example, dopamine uh, modulation may be say uh, somewhat more uh, prominent in the prefrontal cortex than in early sensory systems. For example, that could make a difference as well. Mm -hmm. But I would say again, it's a, a matter of qualitative, quantitative differences leading to qualitatively different functions. Okay. Yeah. So that's, but that's still a very much cortex-centered view. So does it mean that that you would be making the strong statement that okay, working memory can be fully realized by cortical circuits and does not depend on subcortical activity beyond possibly some forms of neuromodulation, so... Yeah, we don't know much about that. I guess there's one thing certainly people th uh, think um, for why subcortical structures might be important, that is gating. So you don't want any sensory stimulus coming into your brain to be stored in working memory, right? So basically you somehow have to gate what really is behaviorally important that you have to maintain internally let's say in the prefrontal cortex. And that seemed to depend on basal ganglia. There's this idea that, you know, basal ganglia, for example, through the thalamus can gate what signal is important and what is not. At least, you know, a part of the gating functions mm -hmm. is dependent on uh, basal ganglia. Okay. Yeah. So it could also be that persistent activity itself, right, uh, may in part depend on uh, reverberation uh, in a bigger loop involving subcortical systems. But for that, I mean, people speculate about that for a long time. As far as I know, uh, we do not yet have very strong evidence for that. Yeah. So then, the, the core ingredients of, of your model will be, let's say, recurrently coupled excitatory circuits with, let's say, some inhibitory uh, add-ons to get selectivity. And this we I think is some summary of your of a cortical circuit. And then this in a, in, a, in towards and this would then project downstream to let's say other subcortical structures to trigger action as in for instance your standard um uh, two choice uh, saccade based tasks. It would be like the choice aspects would happen in this cortical model and then the saccade would be triggered by let's say superior colliculus to which this decision making system would would project. So is that a, an assumption you really would like to insist on, that I said these action elements are extra cortical and that more the sensory-based and the rule-based aspects are processed at the cortical level? Uh, well, that, I guess, uh, depends. So uh, in a way, saccade is special, right? So if you talk about the uh, manual responses, then you know maybe parts of the motor cortex 
are the command centers. And so that would be kind of downstream system form, you know, putative decision circuits where information are integrated, maybe a choice is produced. So in that case, then, even the, uh, you know, at least the part of the uh, response generation uh, is occurring inside the cortex. You know, always together with basal ganglia and, and some other, uh, like thalamus, but in that case, uh, you know, a lot of things may happen in the cortex mm -hmm. as well, yeah. Okay. So your, um, the approach, I mean, also given your background in physics, you, you have used one of these tools that has been important to ne theoretical neuroscience from physics of, let's say, attractor networks to analyze to analyze this model. Um, so why is the notion of an attractor network helping you to understand these prefrontal, these, these cortical dynamics? Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I like to say, especially to experimentalists, that the, the, uh, the word attractor networks seem to have certain, seem to provoke certain reactions in some people, right? So I would sometimes start out uh, by saying that uh, attractor dynamics is not like a black hole. So it's not something that's very rigid, that if you are in an attractor state, then it's like you're sucked in, you cannot get out, and it's, it's very rigid kind of thing. Um, attracted states are simply relatively stable states. That's all. It could even be something, you know, more than just a steady state. For example, you could have uh, chaotic attractors where you have a lot of temporal dynamics going on inside that, you know, uh, chaotic attractor state, right? That's one thing. The other thing is that any inputs or neuromodulation can easily change, if you like, the landscape of attractor states. So you can easily actually control uh, manipulate, you know, the, the landscape of multiple attractor states. So, you know, simply, as I was saying, you know, attractor states are simply relatively stable states. And if, if you want to describe mathematically what is a persistent activity, right, um, then uh, it's natural to think about that as a relatively stable state. That's all. Right, so as a result, the concept of attractive states is pretty natural. Um, people still debate about the actual dynamical structures of uh, persistent activity that should be described well by attractive networks. But that's, I think, a separate issue from the more you know general question whether attractive networks is the right framework or not to describe persistent activity. Right. Yeah. Because I, I could argue um, that in some sense any system that will show some persistence at whatever spatial temporal scale you want to express this, I can re-describe in terms of an attractor network. So the risk might then be that the, the framework of an attractor is so, let's say, super powerful that it might not give you much leverage with, with, with respect to a specific phenomenon. So what's the leverage it has given you to really understand prefrontal cortex? Sorry, I'm not sure I really understand the... Uh, well, it's very simple. You could, in that. some sense, I, you could argue that if you look at the nervous system, you will find at many different levels, you will find persistent states at, in some temporal window. It can be a, a microsecond, it mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Yeah. 
in all those cases, I could step in with an attractor network formulation and say, ah, you see it's an attractor, because the system in, in some way is returning to this state, and then I define that state in some way. Mm-hmm. Right? So that means the, the, attractor, the attractor framework is super powerful, and that you can describe anything with it you want, as long as there's some persistence in the system in some definition of its possible states. So I see. So what's special about, say, prefrontal cortex? Exactly. Why? Why does it give you leverage to understand prefrontal cortex? Right. I guess the the the, the important thing is that you have multiple attractive states at the same time. See, the, if you think about, if you want to design a working memory system, it basically is a system with multiple states, so that you can switch on and off between different states, right? And that may not be so universal. In different systems, for example, you don't need and you don't want, I argue, uh, multiple states in not, not necessarily in the early sensory systems, for example, right? And and so even if you have some persistency, the question is whether you have this uh, ability to uh, you know go back and forth different between many different states with very brief inputs, right? Uh, does that make sense? So that sure. seemed to be um, the distinction between what you want for a working memory system versus a sensory uh, processing mm-hmm. device. Okay, so you're saying it, the framework of attractors gives you uh, leverage in this case because actually you're looking at a system that can uh, be in a large number of possible states, and this is an efficient way to describe these. That's right, yeah. and the persistency. Um, should be at the long time scale mm-hmm. compared to the time constants you have in the system, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, many seconds versus tens of milliseconds right. by biophysical mm-hmm. time constant. And let me also, you know, just briefly say uh, that, uh, as I was, um, you know, discussing in my lecture, that, in fact, faster switches turned out to be not the right conceptualization in model I described. So you also have very slow transients mm-hmm. too. And that not just steady states. And those slow transients like a gradual ramping activity turns out to be very good, you know, computational mean to say integrate information in decision making. So this is a kind of unusual type of attractive networks where you at the same time have multiple stable states, but the you also have this ability to, uh, you know, to have very slow transients mm-hmm. for time integration. Okay, but do you see that as an an, um, an intrinsic property of these circuits, or as an add-on that might be supported by by a different substrate? So, at least for the mechanism we um, found in the model, it's the same circuit. So the same circuit, because the recurrent dynamics is mediated by, um, you know, kind of slower um, cellular mechanism, you can have both mm-hmm. slow transients and multiple states. Okay. Yeah. Whether you know in in the brain, those two things, actually there is evidence, I guess, at a single neuron level that in the brain, those those two things can happen at least in the same circuits. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, actually, very commonly, you observe, you know, decision-related neural signals in a decision task, and the working memory-related signals in a working memory task, 
in very different experiments done in different labs, but from the same cortical areas. Mm -hmm. right? Right. Suggesting you have a shared mechanism. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, although you can never exclude that these might be interspersed circuits that perform different functions, no? Right, it could in theory. Be. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, but before we go, move then to, to this issue of timing and decision making, another issue around the tracking networks is that in order to be, uh, let's say, a certified and, and um, card carrying member of the, the club of attractor networks, you must satisfy certain minimal criteria, like for instance, under perturbation, you must resort to the same attractive state, um, and, and, and so on. So, can, are you sure that these cortical, the frontal cortical networks you look at, do satisfy all these conditions? Well, I guess that's uh, rather difficult to test, especially in behaving animals or behaving primates, especially. So I imagine that if you know people now are uh, making efforts to develop maybe simpler, uh, you know, model systems like rodents, if you can design a good, say, working memory or decision-making task, it's probably. Uh, more likely you can really go down into microsecond mechanisms and get into more detailed information. Um, however, you can, you know, do certain uh, experimental manipulations to test some model predictions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, as I showed that, uh, you know, mentioned earlier that uh, we found that reverberation should be slow. In particular, it probably depends on a particular receptor, an MDA receptor is at the recurrent synopsis, mm -hmm. right? And we, in collaboration with Amy Anston at Yale, actually we tested this idea in behaving monkeys, you know, working memory task, using a technique called iontophoresis to inject a drug locally um, onto neurons you record from. Right, so you you see persistent activity in those neurons in the prefrontal cortex of behaving monkey, and then when you apply the drug, you you know that blocks and MDA receptors, you actually see that persistent activity goes away. Mm -hmm. so that's uh, in my mind a very direct uh, confirmation that the MDA receptors that are slow, mm -hmm. mediate in slow reverberation, uh, you know, are critical for persistent activity. Okay, yes, I, I see that. But then I could argue, well, but maybe you're blocking the NMDA receptors at the part of the thalamic projections. How can, can you exclude that? No, you cannot. Um, that's right. But at least it, we, we can say it's uh, likely to be kind of intrinsic synapses rather than, you know, synapses coming from external stimulation. Because this is a during working memory, during the delay when there's no direct sensory stimulus, right? Um, so to address your question, you can do a different set of experiments, but not with monkey. Mm -hmm. So with rodent, you can do in vitro slices, mm -hmm. right? And actually we have done in collaboration with another group uh, by Wen Jing Gao mm -hmm. in, in Philadelphia, where you do uh, prefrontal cortical slices directly, you can look at, you know, um, MDA or AMPA receptor mediated the transmission between two cells, neighboring neurons. So there's really local connections between two neurons and show how much MDA you have in you know, at this uh, you know, very local synopsis. 
uh, in peripheral neurons. And you can compare that with the same kind of peer recordings in the primary sensory system. You see a big difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that's also consistent. Right. So with that, with, with these experiments... So that will be really cortical, cortical, right? Local. Yes. But with, with the antiphoresis experiment, basically what you're saying is, well, this makes it plausible that the... That the memory state is implemented by a, a recurrent or reverberating circuit, right? but in some sense we then still don't know is whether it really is can be called an attractor or not. Hmm. So would you would you argue that, for instance, these micro stimulation experiments that have been performed, like in in frontal eye fields, that would sort of bias the decision making of of an animal, would you take that as as corroborative evidence of having attractor states, or would that be the kind of way to get at that question? Well, I, I think in order to go further along the question you, I mean, the, you know, what you suggest, we should propose something very well defined that's an alternative to attractive model, right? And otherwise, it's hard to say how yes. do you prove or disprove mm -hmm. the attractor network uh, paradigm. So I guess one alternative is uh, slow transients, just because of some cellular or whatever. Um, you know, biophysical process with very slow time constant, right? And so as a result, uh, in response to a transient stimulus, it just keep going for a long time, right. on a time scale of many seconds, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's something we can try to, right, the contrast with attractive network. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure slow processes are playing a role. The question is whether it's the workhorse, mm -hmm. the main thing. Right. Um, I do see a possible problem with uh, a mechanism that, that's completely based on very slow process because if you have a system with intrinsically very slow time constant, you, as you know, you, know, you would uh, uh, have a hard time to you know, change the system with brief inputs. Right? Because the time constant is so, sure. so long, mm -hmm. you have to use very long mm -hmm. inputs to do anything mm -hmm. with the system. So switching on and off becomes a problem. Right. Yeah. So, but, but maybe you know people can think about a clever way to really propose a very uh, clearly defined alternatives, mm -hmm. right, and then try to decide. Right. So, so what was very exciting about your proposal is that you can now you also made the argument. Look, I can represent the memory state, I can represent the decision-making by switching between my different detractors, but on top of that I can also capture the kind of ramping functions that have to do with the reaction times as observed in prefrontal cortex, right? Where you see that, okay, the, these neurons that seem to correlate with a decision ramp more slowly when you have long reaction times and they ramp very fast with, when, when you have a fast reaction time. So, um, so how could that drop out of your model so easily? What was the trick there? Why, why did that work? Well, I guess the main thing is this idea of slow reverberation, I guess. Uh, and, and, and that was a surprise to us. You know, our priority, as I was saying, you know, working memory itself, in principle, right, if you're an engineer, you think about how did it to design a working memory uh, device, you could say that can be done by faster switches. But when you try to do that with neurons and the realistic synaptic connections, um, you know, it turns out that the, the system is very unstable um, because of the strong feedback, you know, uh, machinery, 
in the system. And one way to solve that is to say positive feedback needs to be slow relative to negative feedback. And that so was kind of forced on mm -hmm. us, you know, on us. So we say, you know, we have to have a working memory mechanism with slow reverberation rather than very fast positive feedback. And from there, it turns out, um, you know, uh, it becomes easy. So, so this slow reverberation turns out to be exactly what you need to get a slow ramping activity in decision making. Right. That's, I thought it's uh, quite nice, mm -hmm. yeah. But now, one one question I would have there is, um, in some sense, in, in in this manipulation, you could have a confound that um, what what we are what we are detecting what we are detecting is based on uh, moving dots essentially, and it's about the coherence of the moving dots that you make your decisions. So I could argue, look, if I have these prefrontal neurons that are sensitive to the moving dots, then the if, I, if they have an orientation tuning, then of course I'm driving them more effectively if I have coherent movement in my scene than if I have if I drive all these neurons incoherently. So that basically means per unit time they get less energy, and therefore as a result I'll be ramping up more slowly or faster. You see, and this then also exactly correlates with the task condition. So imagine I would change the task now that the animal has to make decisions based on let's say. Um, when when there's incoherent movement, it gets reward, and it should ignore coherent movement. So I sort of I change the contingency. Yeah. Would you predict the model would still work, or would you have to add a new feature? So what we added, we do need to add something in that case. That is reward dependent plasticity. So in that case, you have to learn what are the potential outcomes mm -hmm. from your choice options, right? And that we believe is done through learning that depends on say reward okay um, you, I think what you're, you're pointing earlier at is uh, the confound that maybe a slow ramp just correspond to, corresponds to weaker input right um, but uh, it, in part it's true so basically you probably need to integrate more over time if your uh, input your evidence is weaker but it's not just that, because, for example, we showed that if you have more several options, more options to consider, then the reaction times are also slower. And that, in part, is because you have this competition between neuron pools selected for, say, four or five options, and that involves inhibition, because it's a competition mediated by inhibition, that also slows down the ramping activity. So you can also show nicely, you know, something that people see in psychology. The, you know, the more options you have to consider, the slower would be reaction time, for example. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So, but then, the, so the other, the other aspect that I was curious about, if you look at the model, it's also an issue we discussed earlier. The interpretation of this prefrontal cortical function, also in the literature at large, it's in the end very much a labeled line kind of system. That I mean, I have choice options. The choice options depend on certain sensory cues, and if you want, by magic, they just come together in these units or in my in my attractor network, in my current network, and now I can start to make decisions with them. But uh, you could then, of course, pose the question in something that's a form of the symbol grounding problem. Okay, where do these labeled lines come from? And should I really assume that these are labeled lines, that let's say your prefrontal cortex has all these labeled lines projecting into it from other areas, 
representing all possible cues you can ever encounter or you have ever encountered in the world combined with all possible actions that you can ever uh, trigger in response to these cues. So that would be the labeled line view. So do you think that that's a reasonable assumption or is, 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 do we have to get away from it in some way? Right. So I guess you're totally right. We have you know, been focusing on certain uh, elementary and fundamental uh, machineries about working memory and decision making without um, you know, paying too much attention on real life stimuli, right? And how do we really process real life stimuli? So I guess in my mind, um, you know, to go forward um, in that direction, we have to understand better how objects are recognized and represented in the brain. And I could imagine, so for example, in, in the infrared temporal uh, uh, cortex, uh, there we don't really understand yet how, right, how, how we recognize objects. You know, Fully, so it could be delay line, but um, it could be something more than that, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, people talk about the grandmother cells. Uh, that's more like delay line, I guess, uh, uh, in your terminology. But um, or maybe something more dynamic, right? Uh, we don't know yet uh, what that is. But uh, to answer your question, uh, I can envision that you know, starting with the building blocks, basically the elemental. Um, elementary machinery we kind of have some insights into uh, for working memory system, we can uh, envision to connect that with something like, you know, a, a, a sensory visual system, including IT, for example, and see how the interaction between a working memory system and the rest, you know, the posterior part of the visual system together in a you know, larger scale uh, brain system you know, to carry out, uh, you know, more realistic kind of um, representation and the working memory. And I do think that's a major challenge in the, in the field, mm -hmm. how, you know, you know, we have been focused on mostly local circuits, right? And, you know, we have to come up with a, a theoretical um, framework and, you know, new concepts perhaps to understand large-scale brain system with uh, interacting parts. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. So they're also the so to go in that direction. If you look at the physiology on prefrontal cortex, these classic experiments by Assad, Miller, and so on. In the end, you look at populations of, of neurons that actually have a very broad range of representations of cues, actions, and their combinations following different rules. So could you then imagine that maybe you have let's say more specialization in these prefrontal circuits that some neurons, let's say, contribute to cue information, others the action information, and then in their interaction they will build up this, what you would call the attractor, representing this key state in which you want to make your decisions. Would that be a reasonable alternative? Well, actually, um, so we have done more recent work with Stefano Fusi um, and uh, Mattia uh, is a graduate student. Uh, that work suggests, this is a computational work, suggests that in fact um, the neural signals in the prefrontal cortex probably should um, have a lot of mixed selectivity. So a given neuron would be, you know, activated to different degrees by a combination of many different things, including, you know, sensory stimuli, internal representation of behavior rules, and maybe some control signals, 
altogether. So I, uh, my view is that neurons are probably not dedicated to one thing only, mm -hmm. especially in the prefrontal cortex, you know, maybe in contrast to early sensory systems. And there, it's very likely that, you know, there's a lot of uh, multi, a lot of uh, mixed selectivity, and so that, uh, you know, neuron groups, uh, uh, you know, if you like, uh, coding things according to a combinatorial code, mm -hmm. um, that, that, that will be uh, right. maybe a very good way to be able to um, combine information, right? Uh, another thing that's special about prefrontal cortex is that it gets inputs from many, many different areas, right? Um, and that also speaks to the fact that, you know, neural inputs also are kind of, uh, um, you know, coming from a lot of converging, mm -hmm. diverging pathways. Right. Yeah. So then on top of that, um, where do you see these models go? What, what, what's the, the next challenge for you in the... In this in this model, so I guess briefly I can see several directions. Uh, number one is to see if uh, you know the kind of models we we build uh, can be kind of um, those are building blocks of mm -hmm. cognition. I like to call this right local circuit mechanisms and building blocks for cognition. So the question is, can you uh, extend this kind of approach, at least, to more complex behaviors, more complex uh, you know, functions, such as task switching, right? And, uh, or um, rule-based behavior, right? Um, so that's one. Number two, I just mentioned earlier, uh, you know, can we develop theory and, you know, computational mechanisms and the principles for large-scale uh, brain systems rather than just local circuits. And third is real-life situation, you know, that, that uh, definitely will challenge um, our kind of models in a very big way. So, you know, we want to see if, um, you know, the insights from those kind of models are really useful for, you know, um, you know, our behavior in the face of natural kind of environment. Right. Yeah. So then, well, what I also realized is that recently you have been become more interested in, let's say, brain rhythms and brain oscillations. And you, you wrote a rather impressive review article on uh, on these oscillations. Reason? Why? Why? How is this related to the attraction network? So is this really a new chapter? So this is a very interesting topic. I think uh, more and more people are interested in this. Uh, really, very active field. Um, you know, in people from very different disciplines. Uh, you know, like systems neuroscientists, as well as actually uh, many people in the clinical field. People feel like this synchrony, neuron synchrony, might be a way to look at, for example, interactions between brain systems, right? So, you know, related to the large-scale dynamics type of issues. Um, we have worked a lot on, um, you know, the mechanisms of synchrony and possible functions. Um, you know, this it emerges naturally in recurrent networks, basically, okay? But it's still rather controversial, especially in terms of functional implications. 
in part, I think uh, it's because um, you do see often evidence of synchrony and oscillations with measurements like EEG or local field potential. On the other hand, single neurons are very stochastic. Even single neuron populations are very variable. Okay, and so those two things don't seem to you know fit together. Okay, that's I think part of the reason people feel like uh, you know it's hard to understand uh, how do you explain those two things uh, in the same framework. And also, if the neuron uh, operation is very stochastic, then how much, right, uh, in terms of degree, uh, synchrony is really there on top of the stochasticity. And if it's not big, right, if you have some measurement about synchrony, and if it's still a few percent of the signal you see, uh, why it should be the main focus, for example, okay? I'm raising these questions without knowing the exact answers to those questions. So, you know, in this review, for example, I try to discuss how you can reconcile these views, okay? And the general take, I guess we don't definitely know is, is the final answer, but the general take is that you, you maybe it's better to think about the role of synchrony in a framework, in, a, in, a, in terms of neuron correlations, which we know are very important, right? Neuron correlations in time, for example, are important for plasticity, spike time independent plasticity, right? It may be even important uh, to generate a stochasticity. Um, you know, it sounds like a bit of paradoxical, but we know that because a given neuron receives a lot of inputs, um, you can average out noise. And if, in, on the other hand, neurons are correlated weakly, they cannot average out noise, and so maybe correlation itself is, make, is important to generate a stochasticity, right? So and that in turn, of course, can be functionally very important. Right. So, you know, to understand the different aspects of dynamics in the recurrent network is a big challenge. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's a big reason that we, we are interested in synchrony. Very good. So then to, to finish up, uh, two, two questions. So um, coming from physics, going to neuroscience, attracting networks, and actually now moving towards brain oscillations, large-scale understanding of the brain. Um, if you would have to stipulate a law that we should all follow in studying the brain, so what would be the Chaoying Wang law? That's a tough one. Well, let me phrase it this way. Um, I do think that trying to understand neural circuits of cognition is really very exciting, challenging uh, thing. Um, and that would help to unify cognitive sciences and quote-unquote the hardcore neurobiology, which right now are still kind of separated. And from what we learned, at least, uh, the key is slow reverberation balanced by inhibition. And um, so, again, quantitative differences can give you uh, surprisingly new qualitatively different functions and computations. And that will be, I mean, it's probably known from the theory of dynamical systems uh, field, but, uh, you know, it should be a very big part of 
you know, our efforts to understand um, cognitive circuits. Okay, so the charging one law is the uh, slow reverberation does the trick. That's right. <laughs> Very good. For <laughs> time being. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then the my last question is, if, if so, I'm going to go visit you five years from now at Yale. Um, I'm going to ask you then, five years from now, like, look, five years back you gave me this one prediction that you would have believed in, so how did it pan out? Was it false or true? What's this one prediction you would be willing to stick your neck out for today? I guess still slow reverberation. Um, there are many other smaller predictions that came out of the model. Um, you know, one just one more example is uh, this is a very specific example, but I think it's uh, quite impressive. It turns out to be correct. That is, you 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 find some scale invariance of reaction times. That's at the behavior level. It's a psychological law, really. Um, very uh, quantitative, very beautiful law in psychology that you can explain with a neural circuit model mechanism in terms of stochastic neural dynamics, right? And if, you know that can be proved using neural physiology. I thought that would be really uh, quite uh, important, really to, to relate what you see in neurons in the recurrent circuit uh, and what you see at the behavior level. Yeah, but that prediction has already come out, so I want a new one. I can come and hassle you with five years from now. Um, that has not been done yet. Of course. You, the thing is, I want you to now take this risk that you might be wrong. So... I guess, you know, slow reverberation, but I guess how to prove that's wrong is uh, would be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's a safe prediction. Uh, <laughs> um, right. Um, it, you know, well, let's, let's you don't want to have a big one, right? Or just not just any Whatever you feel comfortable um, with. I, how about I, the following? Why don't you put some boundaries on slow? So in what range of, of frequencies are we talking about for slow reverberation? Yeah, so that, I mean, actually opened up a whole can of worms or, or opened a big door because, you know, when you make decisions, you can integrate information over many time scales. So, right, so in the brain, supposedly there are machineries that allow you to uh, integrate information, right? So, so you can talk about integration over many seconds or even minutes. So we don't know on that time scale what really is going on in the brain. Um, Let's see, what prediction that can be proven to be wrong? Um, I, let's make that very specific. I guess I bet NMDA receptors add recurrent uh, synapses inside, you know, cognitive type neuron cortical circuits are the key for uh, slow integration um, on a time scale of a second or so. Perfect. Chao Jing Wang, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. It's a pleasure.